Section twenty six of the Shuans by Honore de Balzac, translated by Ellen Marriage. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Bruce Peary. Chapter three K. His wife and son had hardly disappeared behind the shed when Galop Chopin heard two men jump over the last of the series of Echaliers. By degrees he made out two angular figures, looking like vague shadows in a tolerably thick fog. "'There are Piamiche and Marcheterre,' he said within himself, and trembled as the two Shewans showed their dark countenances in the little yard. Beneath their huge battered hats they looked not unlike the foreground figures that engravers put into landscapes. Good day, Galop Chopin, said Marcheterre soberly. Good day, Monsieur Marcheterre, Barbette's husband respectfully answered. Will you come inside and empty a pitcher or two? I have some cold cakes and fresh butter here. That is not to be refused, cousin, said Pia Miche, and the two Chouans came in. There was nothing to alarm Galop Chopin in this beginning. He hastened to his great cider butt and filled three pitchers, while Marcheterre and Piamiche, seated upon the polished bench on either side of the long table, cut slices of the cakes for themselves and spread them with the rich yellow butter that exuded little beads of milk under the pressure of the knife. Galop Chopin set the foaming pitchers full of cider before his visitors, and the three Chouans fell too. But from time to time the master of the house cast a sidelong glance at Marcheterre as he eagerly satisfied his thirst. "'Pass me your snuff-box,' Marcheterre remarked to Piamiche. The Breton gave it a few vigorous shakes, till several pinches lay in the hollow of his hand, then he snuffed the powdered tobacco like a man who wished to fortify himself for serious business. "'It is cold,' Piamiche remarked, and rose to shut the upper part of the door. The dim foggy daylight now only entered the room through the little window, so that only the table and the two benches were faintly visible, but the red glow of the firelight filled the place. Galop Chopin had just refilled the pitchers and had set them before his guests, but they declined to drink, flung their large hats aside, and suddenly assumed a solemn expression. This gesture, and the look by which they took counsel of each other, sent a shudder through Galop Chopin, who seemed to read thoughts of bloodshed lurking beneath those red woolen bonnets. "'Bring us your hatchet,' said Marcheterre. "'But what do you want with it, Monsieur Marcheterre?' "'Come, cousin, you know quite well that you are doomed.' said Pierre Miche, putting away the snuff-box that Marcheterre had returned to him. Both of the Chouans got up and seized their carbines. "'Monsieur Marcheterre, I did not say one word about the gar.' "'Get your hatchet, I tell you,' was the Chouan's answer. The wretched Galop Chopin stumbled over his child's rough bedstead, and three five-franc pieces fell out onto the floor. Pia Miche picked them up. 
Aho, the blues have given you new coin, cried Marcheterre. I have not said one word. That is as true as that Saint Labre's image stands there, Galop Chopin replied. Barbette mistook the counter shoeins for the gar from saint georges that was all why do you prate about your business to your wife marcheterre answered roughly and besides we don't ask you for excuses cousin we want your hatchet you are doomed at a sign from his comrade piamiche helped him to seize the victim Gallop Chopin's courage broke down when he found himself in the hands of the Shuans. He fell on his knees and held up his despairing hands to his executioners. "'Good friends!' he cried. "'And you, cousin, what will become of my little lad?' "'I will look after him,' said Marcheterre. "'Dear comrades,' Gallop Chopin began again with blanched cheeks, I am not ready for death. Will you send me out of the world without shrift? You have the right to take my life, but you have no right to rob me of eternal bliss. That is true, said Marcheterre, as he looked at Piamiche. The two Shuans remained in this most awkward predicament for a moment or two, in utter inability to resolve the case of conscience. Galop Chopin, meanwhile, listened to the slightest noise made by the wind, as if he had not yet lost all hope. He looked mechanically at the cider butt. The regular sound of the dripping leakage made him heave a melancholy sigh. Suddenly Piamiche clutched the sufferer's arm, drew him into a corner, and said to him, "'Confess your sins to me.' I will repeat them to a priest of the true church, and he will give me absolution. If there is any penance, I will do it for you. Gallop Chopin obtained some respite by the way in which he made his confession, but in spite of the number of his sins and the full account which he gave of them, he came at last to the end of the list. Alas! he said when he had finished since i am speaking to you my cousin as to a confessor i affirm to you by the holy name of god that i have nothing to reproach myself with unless it is that i have now and then buttered my bread a little too well and i call saint labre over there above the chimney-piece to bear witness that i have not said a word about the gah no my friends i did not betray him all right get up cousin you will explain all that to the bon dieu when the time comes let me say one little word of good-bye to barb come now said marcheterre if you want us not to think more ill of you than we can help behave yourself like a breton and die decently the two Shuans seized Gallop Chopin again, and stretched him on the bench, where he lay making no sign of resistance, save convulsive movements prompted by physical fear. There was a heavy thud of the hatchet, and a sudden end of his smothered cries. His head had been struck off at a blow. 
Marcheterre took it up by a lock of hair and went out of the hut. He looked about him and found a great nail in the doorway, about which he twisted the strand of hair and so suspended the bloody head without even closing the eyes. The two Shuans washed their hands leisurely in a great earthen pan full of water, put on their hats, took up their carbines, and sprang over the échalier, whistling the tune of the Ballad of the Captain. At the end of the field Pia Miche began in a hoarse voice to sing some odd stanzas of the simple poem. The first town that they came unto her lover has lighted down, and he has clad that bonny lass in a milk-white satin gown. The next town that they came unto he has lighted her lover bold, and he has clad her in white silver and in the ruddy gold. But when she came to his regiment, so fair a maid to greet, they have taken webs of the silken cloth to spread them beneath her feet. As the Shuans went farther and farther away, the tune grew less distinct, but there was such a deep silence over the countryside that a note here and there reached Barbette as she returned to the cabin, holding her little boy by the hand. No peasant woman can hear this song with indifference, so popular is it in the west of France. Barbette, therefore, unconsciously took up the earlier verses of the ballad. We must away, bonnie lassie, for we have far to ride. We must away to the wars, lassie, I may no longer bide. Spare thy trouble, O bold captain, save that treason give her thee, she shall not be thine in any land, nor yet upon the sea. Her father has stripped her of her weed, and flung her into the wave, but the captain has swum out cannily, his lady-love to save. We must away, bonnie lassie, etc. Barbette came into her yard, just as she had reached the place in the ballad at which Pia Miche had taken it up. Her tongue was suddenly petrified. She stood motionless, and a loud cry, which she instantly repressed, came from her open mouth. Mother dear, what is the matter? asked the little one. "'You must go alone,' cried Barbette in a choking voice, as she withdrew her hand from his and pushed him from her with indescribable roughness. "'You have a father and mother no longer.' The child rubbed his shoulder, but he caught sight of the head as he cried, and, though his pink and white face was still puckered by the nervous twitch that tears give to the features, he grew silent. He stared wide-eyed for a long while at his father's head with a stolid expression that revealed no emotion whatever. His face, brutalized by ignorance, at last came to wear a look of savage curiosity. At last Barbette suddenly took her child's hand in a powerful grip and hurried him into the house. One of Galop Chopin's shoes had fallen off when Piamiche and Marcheterre had stretched him on the bench. It had lain beneath his neck and was filled with blood. This was the first thing that met the widow's eyes. Take off your sabot, 
the mother said to her son, and put your foot in that. Good, always remember your father's shoe, she cried in piteous tones. Never set a shoe on your foot without remembering how this one was full of blood that the shoeans spilt, and kill the shoeans. She shook her head so violently as she spoke that the long locks of her black hair fell about her throat and gave her face a sinister look. I call Saint Labre to witness, she went on, that I dedicate you to the blues. You shall be a soldier so that you may avenge your father. Kill them, kill the Shuans, and do as I do. Ah, oh, they have taken my husband's head, and I will give the head of the gar to the blues. She sprang to the bed at a bound, drew a little bag of money from its hiding-place, took her astonished child by the hand, and dragged him forcibly with her, not even leaving him time to put on his sabot again. Then they both set out for Fougere at a quick pace, neither of them giving a look behind them at the cottage they were forsaking. When they reached the summit of the crags of Saint-Sulpice, Barbette stirred up her fire of faggots, and her little son helped her to pile on bushes of green broom with the rime upon them, so as to increase the volume of smoke. That will outlast your father's life, and mine, and the gars, too, said Barbette savagely, as she pointed out the fire to her child. While Galope Chopin's widow and son, with his foot dyed in blood, were watching the eddying smoke-wreaths with brooding looks of vengeance and curiosity, Mademoiselle de Vernoy's eyes were fastened on the crag. She tried in vain to discern the signal there of which the Marquis had spoken. The fog had grown gradually denser, and the whole district was enveloped in a grey veil that hid the outlines of the landscape, even at a little distance from the town. She looked with fond anxiety at the crags and the castle, and at the buildings that loomed through the heavy air like darker masses of the fog itself. A few trees round about her window stood out against the bluish background like branching corals dimly seen in the depths of a calm sea. The sun had given to the sky the yellowish hues of tarnished silver. Its rays shed a vague red color over the bare branches of the trees, where a few last withered leaves were hanging yet but Marie felt an agitation of soul too delightful to allow her to draw dark auguries from this scene. It was too much out of harmony with the happiness to come, of which, in thought, she took her fill. Her ideas had altered strangely in the past two days. Slowly the fierceness and uncontrolled outbursts of her passions had been subdued by the influence of the even warmth that true love brings into a life. The certain knowledge that she was beloved, for which she had sought through so many perils, had awakened in her a desire to 
return within the limits in which society sanctions happiness limits which despair alone had led her to overstep a love that only lasts for the space of a moment seemed to her to betoken weakness of soul she had a sudden vision of herself withdrawn from the depths wherein misfortune had plunged her and restored again to the high position in which she had been placed by her father her vanity awoke after being repressed by the cruel vicissitudes of a passion that had met at times with happiness and again at times with scorn she saw all the advantages conferred by an exalted rank when she was married to Monteron and came into the world, so to speak, as a marquise, would she not live and act in the sphere to which she naturally belonged? She could appreciate better than other women the greatness of the feelings and thoughts that underlie family life, for she had known the chances of a life of continual adventure the responsibilities and cares of marriage and motherhood would for her be a rest rather than a burden she looked forward longingly through this last storm to a quiet and virtuous life as a woman tired of virtuous conduct might give a covetous glance at an illicit passion virtue for her possessed a new attraction she turned away from the window for she could not see the fire on the crags of saint-sulpice perhaps i have coquetted overmuch with him but was it not in this way that i learned how well i was beloved francine it is a dream no longer to-night i shall be the marquise de montauran what can I have done to deserve such entire happiness? Oh, I love him, and love alone can requite love. And yet it is God's purpose, doubtless, to reward me, because I have kept so much love in my heart through so many miseries, and to make me forget all that I have suffered, for I have suffered greatly, as you know, dear child you marie you to-night the marquise de montauran ah until it is over and done i shall think that i am dreaming who taught him to know your worth but he has not only a handsome face dear child he has a soul too if you had seen him in danger as i did ah oh, he is so brave he needs must know how to love well if you love him so much why do you allow him to come to fougere had we time to say a word to each other before we were surprised besides that is it not one more proof of his love can one ever have enough of them do my hair he will not be here yet but stormy thoughts still mingled themselves with the anxieties of coquetry and again and again she spoiled the carefully arranged effects as her hair was dressed by movements that seemed to be electric 
as she shook out a curl into waves or smoothed the glossy plates a trace of mistrust made her ask herself whether the marquis was playing her false and then came the thought that such baseness would be unfathomable for in coming to seek her at fougeres he had boldly laid himself open to swift and condign punishment she studied keenly in the mirror the effects of a side glance of a smile of a slight contraction of her brows of a gesture of anger scorn or love seeking in this way for a woman's wile that should probe the young chief's heart even at the last moment you are right francine said she like you i wish that the marriage was over this is the last of my overclouded days it is big with my death or our happiness this fog is detestable she added looking afresh at the summits of saint-sulpice that were still hidden from her with her own hands she arranged the curtains of silk and muslin that draped the window taking a pleasure in shutting out the daylight and so producing a soft gloom in the chamber take away those knick-knacks that cover the chimney-piece francine she said leave nothing there but the clock and the two dresden vases i myself will put into them those winter flowers that corentin found for me take all the chairs out of the room i only care to keep the armchair and the sofa and when you have done these things child brush the carpet to make the colors look brighter and put candles in the sconces by the fireside and in the candlesticks marie looked long and closely at the ancient tapestry that covered the walls of the room her innate taste discovered among the vivid colors of the warp the hues which could serve to bring this decoration of a bygone day into harmony with the furniture and accessories of the boudoir hues which either repeated their colors or made a charming contrast with them the same idea pervaded her arrangement of the flowers with which she filled the fantastic vases about the room the sofa was drawn up to the fire upon two gilded tables on either side of the bed which stood near the wall opposite to the chimney-piece she set great dresden vases filled with leafage and sweet-scented flowers more than once she trembled as she arranged the voluminous folds of green silk brocade about the bed and followed with her eyes the curving lines of the flowered pattern on the coverlet which she laid over it about such preparations there is an indefinable secret happiness a delightful stimulation that causes a woman to forget all her doubts in the pleasure of her task as mademoiselle de vernoy did at this moment is there not a kind of religious sentiment about the innumerable pains thus undertaken to please a beloved being who is not there to behold them and to recompense them but who must later on feel the significance of these charming preparations and repay them with an approving smile in moments like these women give themselves up to love in advance so to speak 
there is not one who does not say to herself as mademoiselle de vernoy said in her thought i shall be very happy to-night the most innocent among them at such times sets this sweet hope in the least folds of the silk or muslin and the harmony that she establishes about her steeps the whole of her surroundings in an atmosphere of love all things in this delicious world of her creation become living beings and onlookers she already makes them accomplices in her happiness to come at each movement and at each thought she grows bold to rob the future soon her hopes and expectations cease and she reproaches the silence she must needs take the slightest sound for a presage till doubt at last sets his talons in her heart and she feels the torture of a burning thought that surges within her and that brings something like a physical strain to bear upon her without the sustaining hope of joy she could never bear those alternations of exultation and of anguish time after time mademoiselle de vernoy had drawn the curtains aside hoping to see a column of smoke rising above the rocks but the fog appeared to grow grayer every moment until at last its grisly hues affected her imagination and seemed to be full of evil augury in a moment of impatience she let the curtain fall and vowed to herself that she would not raise it again she looked discontentedly round the room for which she had found a soul and a language asked herself whether her preparations had all been made in vain and fell to pondering over them at the thought she drew francine into the adjoining dressing-closet in which there was a round casement looking out upon the dimly visible corner of the cliffs where the fortifications of the town joined the rocks of the promenade little one she said put this in order for me and let everything be fresh and neat you may leave the salon in disorder if you will she added with one of the smiles that women keep for those who know them best with a subtle delicacy in it that men can never understand ah how lovely you look cried the little breton maid ah, fools that we all are is not our lover our fairest ornament francine left her stretched languidly on the sofa as she went out slowly step by step she began to see that whether her mistress was beloved or no she would never betray montauran end of section twenty six